Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses. Feel like you're at a wedding? I did that on purpose. I, I want to make sure I just say welcome. It's great to see everybody this morning. Genuinely excited to see every single one of you here. But I chose those words to start with because this is, I don't know how that got stuck just in weddings, but this is what gathering is. This is what church is. Listen to this. Dearly beloved, we're, we're, we're met here in unity and in love for a common purpose. We're, we're here to, because we love each other. We are a gathering. We are a family. We have gathered here today. We, you, you chose today. This is really the only choice any of us ever have is what we do today. We can't change the past. We, we can affect the future, but all of that happens only today. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today in the sight of God. God himself is actually watching. God himself is actually present right now. God himself is actually among us. God himself and is the whole reason we're here in the first place. Dearly beloved, we have gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses. The body of Christ, the people of Christ, the followers of Christ. This is the kingdom of God. And we are here together. It's how he designed it. It's what he wanted from the beginning is that we do this together dearly beloved we have gathered here today in the sight of God and these witnesses to worship him to meet around his table to explore his word together to tell him we love him to tell each other we love him and hopefully to learn more and to actually start applying even more in our lives isn't that a beautiful thing isn't that powerful and that's what it means to gather that's what gathering together that's what the church is each year we come back around and try to remind ourselves again just what is authentic faith. It's pretty simple. It's two things. If your faith is authentic, that means it's based in something real. It's based in something that's real. Also, if your faith is authentic, that means you authentically live by that faith. About a year ago, I used this illustration. It worked not only so well to get the point across, it got me free coffee, so I'm using it again. I know that on a really hard, long day, if I just can't think anymore, I can go down to our town coffee shop, which is an awesome, wonderful place to go, by the way, if you haven't gone there yet. You go down there, I can get what they call a red eye, which is like coffee with a shot of espresso in it, and I know that the rest of the day I'm going to be able to handle this. I have faith. I believe that I can go down and I can get that done. Now, if I didn't actually go down there and buy one and drink it, it's not going to do me any good. My, I know that my, from experience, not just reputation, I know from experience that I can go down there. My faith in that, that red eye is, it's legitimate, it's authentic. Okay? But I also know that it, the only way that I'm going to get anything done, get the benefit of that, is if I actually take some time and some money and some energy and I go down there and get it and drink it when I come back. Does this make sense? That's what authentic faith looks like. The blessing is, and whoever of you are that's doing this, thank you. But ever since then, I've paid for very few cups of coffee. Every time I go there, they're like, somebody says you're, you're telling them about this, and they like it, and you need it, and they've just, I, I've got a running tab there. So I just put money in the tip jar every time, and thank you. That's fueling anything else that's happening around here that I'm doing. So thank you for that. But anyway, that's what authentic faith looks like. It's something that's real. It's worth putting your faith in. And then you actually really, truly put your faith in it. But this isn't a sermon about that. This is a sermon about how we are going to uh, explore how to be the church better. Okay? 
how, how, how we're going to be the church better. Uh, have you, how many have ever heard people use the word adult now as a verb? Anybody use this? It's time to adult now. We're about to adult, okay? Um, that we almost called this series uh, churching or how to church, okay? But without, no, that's just going to, people are going to go, oh, it's misprint. They're not going to get when, when they see it. So we changed it to just the church. But this is the idea. What we're looking at is how do we do this the way God designed it? How are, how are we getting it right and how can we lean into that even further? What, is there anything where we're getting it wrong and how can we fix that? What, what can we do to measure ourselves against God's standards and to get there? This past week, I was um, blessed to be part of the Global Leadership Summit. It's a big thing I'll tell you much more about later. But in the middle of it, uh, this, there were several things that stuck out to me. And um, I, I'd been working on this message for a long time. But when I was like, yeah, that's better than what I was going to say. So I'm going to give full credit where credit is due and use that this morning. Uh, there was a lady named Danielle Strickland who spoke. She's uh, involved in a bunch of different ministries, one of which is uh, coaching a bunch of different ministries in Rwanda. And uh, she asked this question, and I'd like you to uh, read this question with me. You don't have to say it out loud, but at least read it on the screen. Say it out loud if you can, because it's a really powerful question that's going to fuel where we go today. She says, are your deepest beliefs true? Make sure, because they fuel the values that drive the actions that produce the fruit you see in your life. One more time. Are your deepest beliefs true? Make sure, because they fuel the values that drive the actions that produce the fruit you see in your life. On a recent um, trip to Rwanda, she was talking to some of the leaders, and she asked them about a statistic that she had read, which was that the national rate of domestic violence in Rwanda has dramatically dropped in the last couple of years by 60% nationwide. And she was like, is that real? Is that really happening? And what happened? And one of the leaders, one of the guys who's a, um, he runs a great big church there, very influential guy, he goes, well, it actually, it had to do with something you told us. What in the world? I don't remember talking about domestic violence. He goes, no, it was that thing you said that um, our lives are like trees. Well, let me explain just a little bit. This is how she broke it down for us. And it's, it's so simple and so obvious. You've probably heard this before, but it just made sense. Later on today, if you can stay awake and hold on, I'll tell you the rest of his story and how he applied it in his life. But this is the foundational idea. Our roots are the deepest beliefs that we have. This is our world view. Our roots are the things that they are the foundational things that help us believe anything else. For example, there are people in the world who believe there is no such thing as absolute truth, period. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is a construct. Everything that we believe, we, we just make up in our heads and somehow we make that work. Okay, well that's nonsense. Uh, it is. It's absolutely crazy. And when they tell you that, they're going to say it, it's, it's absolutely true that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And if you say there is, you're absolutely wrong. Okay, they're already contrary. That's just nonsense. Now, on the flip side of that, there are people who believe that there is such a thing as objective truth, as absolute truth. But that creates a whole other problem. Because if there is, then we can't all be right. We could all be wrong about it. But we can't all be right if we're conflicting. 
Does that make sense? Absolute truth is a fact. It's something that's real. It's just what it is. You can think what you want about it. You can agree, disagree, act on it, not act on it. But it is what it is. Some people believe that. Some people believe that. And because they believe that, because that's their roots, then the trunk of their tree, what they believe, what they, can, what, what they build on those roots of that deep belief that there can be something that's absolute, then they go, okay, so if there is such a thing as right and wrong, what is right? What is wrong? How do I know the difference? Then you can actually start having things like morals and values and ethics and doctrine and codes of conduct, rules. You can go, because there is such a thing as right and such a thing as wrong, this thing is in the wrong category. This thing is in the right category. Is this making sense? You with me? It's not, it's not rocket science, but you'd be surprised how many human beings miss this every single day, including myself. We don't think about it this, this profoundly, and it's just this simple. Third thing is the branches. The branches of a tree, the branches of your life, are the things that you do based on those deep beliefs and the codes of ethics that you have built on them. The branches are what you actually do. They reveal what you believe. They prove what you believe. The branches are also where the fruit gets produced. Here's, here's an example of how that could work. Uh, if you believe, for example, that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and then on top of that you believe that telling the truth is a good thing and telling a lie is a bad thing, okay? then chances are you, you may mess up at some point, but pretty consistently you're going to tell the truth you're going to avoid telling lies. Those are the actions that you take. And then the fruit will happen. Now, let's say that you don't believe there's anything and you tell the truth sometimes and you tell lies sometimes. The fruit of your life is going to be pretty random. Let's say that you do believe in right and wrong. You do believe that telling the truth is, is good, telling lies are bad, but you lie anyway. Guess what? The fruit is going to be really bad. Does that make sense? And, and, and that, that's how that works. And, and, and here's, here's another example, just to show you how this works. Let's say that you're a, a good traditional American. Your worldview, more than Jesus, is rooted in America, whatever that means anymore. But let's say that one of those core American beliefs is, is part of your deepest belief, deeper than anything else. You believe that your faith is very, very personal. Very personal. Faith is personal. Here's, here's what's going to happen. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying this is how that would work. That's the root of your faith, okay? It's very personal, okay? Here's, the, here's what's going to happen. You're going to admire the strong, silent types of the world. That's going to be your heroes. You're going to resent people who present absolutes to you all the time. You're going to, whether that's at church or people who are trying to get you to recycle or whatever else, you're going to, you're going to have a problem. You're going to have a problem. Hey, you can't tell me. You do you. Let me do me. You think that, that's great for you. I think this, leave me alone. I, I, again, I'm not arguing about a certain I issue. I'm just saying this is how this works. Your deepest thing is this is personal. Anything that makes your thing step on my thing is going to suddenly be a big problem. It's, it's wrong. Here, here's the thing. Somebody like that could probably produce some really great things in their life, accomplish great things, affect the world in great things. Here's what's not going to happen. They're not going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. They're not going to produce kingdom fruit because that only happens when we, our roots go down and the deepest, deepest part of us is into Jesus, into him, into what he wants. 
Let's say that your deepest, deepest belief about everything else is in God and in Jesus Christ being his son and that he is the one and only savior of the world. And we are his body. And underneath all that, that's what fuels everything else. Then all of the rights and wrongs of your life and all the maybe just a little bit better and just a little bit worses of your life are going to be shaped of that. The trunk of your tree is going to grow out of that perspective. You're, you're going to admire those who play their parts well in the body of Christ. Whether those are the people who are out, out loud telling the story or people just telling it with their lives in some way. Whether they work in the church or they work anywhere, but they are, their goal is to share this truth that they know, to live it out, to, to, to help their families live it out. You're going to produce kingdom fruit because God's spirit is producing fruit in you. Jesus said, if you remain connected to me, I will produce great fruit in you. The Holy Spirit is the source of the fruit of the Spirit. This is how this works. And this is why the early church, the very first church, was so powerful and so effective. I'm going to read this to you. You don't have to read this part out loud with me, but please pay attention. Please watch it. Let your eyes follow. Listen. Hear with your heart because this is, man, this is what it looks like to be the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's two things that you can see in there, two major foundational ideas that make a church a church. Two things that you can't compromise this and still call what we do when we gather together church. Uh, the, the most precise language there's ever been that I know of is the Greek language. And that's why you hear a lot of times people go, what it says in the Greek. We're not trying to be fancy. We're just trying to get to the root. And there's two words I want to make sure that you walk away knowing today. One is koinonia and the other is ekklesia. The first one, let's look at that. Koinonia is the word that we normally translate fellowship. Okay, everybody try and say that with me. Say koinonia. Koinonia. You can do it. One more time. Koinonia. It's beautiful. It even sounds nice. But here's what it means. It, when we think of fellowship, we tend to think of like fellowship meals, right? Like, you know, but I, I know, I, I, I spent a lot of time with Jesus. I've never shared a casserole with him. You know what I'm saying? I, I think it's awesome that we have fellowship meals. I think that's part of it. I think when we eat together, you can see they ate together daily in their homes. That, that's part of it. But there's so much more than that. The biblical idea of fellowship, of koinonia, that word can also be translated, and it is throughout the scriptures, as sharing, as community, as intimacy. It, it, it's about complete unity, oneness of purpose, of a, a community that has many different roles and yet equality as far as worth goes. That, that the leaders are not more important than the followers or vice versa, but they play their roles and they respect those roles. That they submit to one another out of reverence 
for Christ. Paul uses this same word when he talks about having fellowship with Christ in 1 Corinthians. He uses the same word when he talks about participation in Christ. Participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Participation in the suffering of Christ. He uses that whenever he talks about that. By the way, all of these dark, bold things in your bulletin insert those are all these scriptures i'm referencing and i always my dream is always that you take these home and actually look all this up in 30 minutes we can't get through everyone read everyone out loud but this is all this is all coming coming straight out of scripture paul also uses the same word to describe offerings and generosity it's the same thing. There were several times in the New Testament where you see one church giving an offering to another church that was suffering. And that word, they said that because of your koinonia, you are giving a koinonia. It's an active, active kind of fellowship. It's a oneness. It's a we are in this together 100%. One of the best visual ways I've ever seen this work is an Amish barn raising. Have you guys ever seen one of those? It's pretty cool. Here's what the Amish know is that a brand new little couple starting out on their farm, they need a barn. Second thing they know is they can't afford to do it on, uh, on their own. They can't afford, they don't want them to have to go into debt. There's a lot of other reasons why they don't do that. So they say, here's what they do. When a brand new couple gets married, they're going to start their farm. The whole community invests. There's no debt involved. There's no money that needs to pay back. They all chip in and they all pay for the barn. They all feed each other that day. They sing, they pray, they worship. They have this whole big thing and in one day they all drop everything else they're doing in one day they raise the entire barn for this new couple in the morning there's no barn at the end of the day they've got a barn and they're ready to rock that's koinonia that's where everybody's working together your stuff is my stuff we we're, we got to get this done Rome County High School Band wins awards all the time because they understand this on a very practical level they work together there's blood sweat and tears in all of the all the band camps and the hot blazing sun and all the day after day of practice and all that stuff but it pays off when you see them perform it's like one organism it's beautiful it's all perfect it's great that's why they do so well all the time. It's because they understand that on the other side of all that hard work, they're, they're so united. We're, we're going to get this right. We're going to get this right. Their leaders coach them. We're going to get this right. And on the other side of getting it right, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's just, it's just people playing instruments, but it's amazing. Right? That's koinonia. That's the way that looks like. Koinonia looks like this. Here's, here's a little joke for you. Two UT football players got called in for cheating. They say, how do you, how do you know we're cheating? I said, well, this last test you took it is identical except for one question. Well, that could happen to anybody. Well, it's that one question. You said, I don't know, and you said, me neither. <laughs> I, 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 I cheer for UT. It's just a good joke, okay? That's just, I like that. But when you're totally in it together, are you with me on this? Win, lose, or fail, you're in this together. That's koinonia. So I hope that makes sense. Next thing is ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word that's normally translated church. Most of the time, if you read in any English translation, you see the word church. It's going to be a translation of the word ecclesia. But that, too, is so much more. It's at least three big ideas. One is the global church, the global kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is the sense, it's the word he used, ecclesia. But when Jesus in Matthew 16 says, upon this rock I will build my church, he's not talking about Morrison Hill Christian Church 
itself, he's talking about the whole church, the global church, anybody who builds their lives on him. But in Matthew 18, 17, when Jesus says how to resolve conflict his way, and he's coaching through, he says, go straight to that person. If that don't work, take one person with you, go straight to them again. That doesn't work. It goes through the steps. The last step is take it to the church. He's talking about a local congregation. He's talking about a body of believers that work together, that trust each other, that are one in purpose, that have elders above them, that deacons that are serving them. And he's talking about a lot like what we are right here and what we're aspiring to be and what we always have tried to be. It's talking about a local church. You see this in Acts in several different places. You also see, um, here, here's a couple more. You see the distinct congregation when you see Peter in Acts 12, his miraculous escape from prison. It's that awesome story in Acts 12 starts out that the church in Jerusalem was praying for him relentlessly. Well, that's the church in Jerusalem. The rest of the people didn't know about it yet. But that little congregation, that wasn't the whole church, but that church... They were united praying for Peter. And they saw stuff happen because of it. James 5, when he said, if any of you is sick, you should call the elders and have them anoint you with oil and pray for you so that you may be healed. He's talking about a local church. He's not talking a global, a global um, massive thing that's going to happen. It's a small group of people that you know already and trust. It's all of those things. But the word ecclesia at its core, it's very important to understand this. The word ecclesia doesn't actually mean church in Greek. What it means is a gathering. A gathering of any sort. People who gather. The gathering itself. You can use it the same way as adulting or churching. You can gather. You can gather ring. I'm using those intentionally wrong, but I hope you get what I'm trying to say. Gathering is... is, is you can gather for a lot of reasons. In Acts chapter 19, you see Paul and several of his team are on a, a mission trip. And they're going throughout the world that, as they know it at the time. And they are, incur they are building the church, the global ecclesia. They are visiting individual, excuse me, individual churches, the local ecclesias. They're coaching them and all that. In the midst of all that, they are taking up koinonia, offering to other churches and delivering that offering, that gift, that koinonia to them. They're going back and forth with all of this. They're working all, it's this huge, awesome picture. In the middle of that, in one of the places they go, there's this massive uprising. Because as Jesus' kingdom is taking over, the people there, there, there are some businessmen, their whole massive amount of business was built around idolatry. Worshipping a specific idol called Artemis. So they get this whole mob together. They're going to try and lynch Paul and his friends. They're going to try and kill them and take this problem out and go back to business as usual, literally. And so they're trying to do that, and they've got this whole mob uh, up, up in arms. Here's exactly what they said. It says, the assembly was in confusion. Some of them were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people... is the actual church of God. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this to the local church, the local ecclesia in Corinth. He says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. 
And if that's happening, it's not a church at all. Then he goes on, and I'm skipping some parts. Please read the whole passage on your own later. But listen, he says, so then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. They're taking communion. They're sharing it. They're going through the motions. He's saying that's not the Lord's Supper if this stuff is going wrong. He says, do you despise the church of God, the global ecclesia, by humiliating those who have nothing? It's only a gathering. Our gathering is only church if it's right. And that leads us to another whole thing. There's this, there's this word people are scared of called etymology, the study of where words come from. How many of you guys are really into that? Oh, more in the last service combined. Like, yeah, that's cool. There's like five of us, I think. But here's the thing. Some people have made a huge deal out of this one word and tried to build the theology. I'm not sure you can. I've studied this a lot. The word ek in Greek means out of, and kaleo is a verb that means to call. So they say ekklesia means to call out of. The only place, that, that's true, and I think that's a cool beauty little thing that God had bonus in there. But that's not really what it means. It just means gathering. It's just an extra bonus thing that it also means called out. But here's the thing, that idea of called out, I'd like you to kind of still connect that with your head in, with Ecclesia because here's why. We have to be called out ones. We are the called out ones. And if we're not, we're not the gathering as God designed it to be. We're not capital T, the capital G gathering. We are not who God designed us to be. This is so clear throughout scripture. Here's just a couple spots where you see it, just so we, you get the idea. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes... Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And in that moment, he is quoting both Isaiah and Ezekiel. They both had almost word for word that same quote. We could go on and on. We talk, the Bible talks about walking in the light instead of walking in darkness. It talks about um, us being holy, which means pure and a bunch of other things, but at its, its core meaning really means just separate, different, special, set aside. There's no way to, ex to escape this idea. It's what makes our gathering the gathering. It's what makes our gathering church. And if we miss it, we miss it, and it's just another gathering. And here's what Peter said. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. For us to have our gathering be the church, we must always make sure that we are doing, believing, and experiencing the things that the early church did. That we are following the, teachers of the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of his followers, the scriptures that we have. And that's what we're going to be exploring in the next several weeks together. Let, first, before I wrap up this morning and give you one more challenge here, here's what I'd love to do is finish that story that I started at the beginning. Remember the lady, um, uh, Daniel Strickland, she came to Rwanda and she was talking to that guy and saying, how, how did this happen? And, and he goes, well, because of the, our lives are a tree. Like, I don't get it. He started to explain. 
In Rwanda, for years and years and years, it's completely culturally acceptable for a man to beat his wife. It's totally okay. You find out somebody in church beats their wife, not a problem. This guy was a very influential pastor. Everybody knew. There were times, you know, she needed a beating, she got one. That was their perspective. That was his perspective. He saw no problem with that. He did not get that. That was so much part of his deep root belief that he didn't see how that conflicted with the teachings of Jesus. But when they started asking that question as a body of Christ, what are, are the deep things you believe true? Are your deepest truths true? And how do those shape what you do? He started realizing there's this massive disconnect between all the teachings of Jesus, not just about marriage and, and love and how husbands should treat their wives, but how you treat anybody, even strangers. There's just no way you could reconcile those. And so he repented of that. And he said, I, 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 my deepest truth is, is Jesus, not anything else. And he started asking himself, where did this come from? And he realized, he, he thought, forgot about it for years, but he realized when he was 14, just like most young Rwandan men, his dad had sent him down and he said, now listen, son, you're about to become a man. You've got to realize, as a man, it's your responsibility to keep your wife in line. You're going to have to beat her sometimes. You're going to have to do that. That's what men do. He was taught that. And it was so hard for him to disconnect that from his, his, all the true things and good things his dad had told him. It was so hard for him to see that as in direct conflict with the teachings of Jesus that all those years he hadn't. But finally when he did, when he asked those hard questions and he goes, are my deepest beliefs, my deepest assumptions that fuel what I see as right and wrong, that fuel the actions, that fuel the fruit that's in my life, are those, am I sure about that? Am I sure that we're getting this right? When he started asking those questions, he realized, no, he was so wrong on that. And he changed. He repented. He, made, he was public about it. Apologized to his wife. Completely changed all of that. And the fruit of that was their marriage was totally different. Their family was totally different. The men in his church were like, I'm going to try that. And, and the community just started to see this difference. And they were like, whoa, kindness works better than beating. Who knew? 60% of the entire national domestic violence rate went down because some people started asking questions about this deepest truth and how that shapes everything we believe, which shapes what we do. Your life is a tree. And I'm asking you this morning, are you sure that the deepest stuff you believe, even if you already do believe in God, is there some other stuff that's complicating that? Are you sure? Are you sure that what you believe is true? Because it's going to shape everything else in your life. Here's two last quotes that I got from this global summit. And I, I'm going to unpack them in a, in a way that applies to Jesus. And I, you guys could all already come to worship team at any point. You can come on up while I share these last ideas. But we're going to offer the, an, an invitation and challenge to you. But here's two quotes. I need you to pay attention because these aren't necessarily about Jesus, but they totally apply to what we're talking about today. First is from Seth Godin. Seth Godin is an expert on marketing. And he says this, in a crowded marketplace, fitting in is a failure. In a busy marketplace, not standing out is the same as being invisible. Jesus calls us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We cannot afford to be invisible. We have got to make sure that our gathering is not just a gathering. That we're not just here and some of us don't even know why we're here. 
We've got to make sure that we're getting this right, that it's all about that. And that's any, anything else. If we're fitting in really well to the rest of the world, we're actually failing. We're supposed to be showing them the light. The second quote is from Bozema St. John. She's also a marketing expert, but she's also an expert on helping people get along better. But I loved what she said here. She said, diversity is where everyone is allowed to come to the party. Inclusion is asking someone to dance. That's cool and true in and of itself, but that's a whole nother day. This is what I'd love for you to see out of this. Jesus does not ask us to just believe something. Jesus does not say, hey, you know what? Why don't you show up sometimes on Sunday mornings? Why don't you just come and listen, maybe sing along if you feel like it? He invites you to dance. He invites you to try the stuff that he's telling you. He invites you to live it, to apply it. And when you stumble and you fall, he's right there dancing with you, picks you back up. He's saying, come on in, be part of this. You don't, you're not just allowed to come. Come in with me. Let's do this together. And, and little by little, we all learn the right choreography. And little by little, we all get better at it and better at it. Please, band, come on up. Come on up. You guys, it's time. We're, we're, we're going to offer this challenge to everyone. And here, here's what I'd like you to do this morning is maybe, maybe all God needs you to do this morning is just ask some hard questions. Am I sure that my core beliefs are all in alignment with God? Am I sure that there's not some things deep, deep down, way below what I think is right or wrong or any of the actions I'm taking, way down, am I sure about that? Am I sure that it's really based in Jesus? Am I really building my life on the rock? Maybe that's all. It's just ask that question. See where that takes you. But if you're like me, probably this morning, there's some very specific things that God is saying, hey, if you're serious about this, dude, do this. Stop doing this. My challenge is whatever that decision is you need to make this morning, would you do that as we stand and as we sing this song of commitment?